I just thank you for your amazing word that reveals to us your heart to your creation. Now I pray this morning that your voice would speak through me into our innermost being, that we will hear your voice, Lord, encouraging, challenging, comforting, directing our thoughts and our meditation today. And Lord, may they please you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. On September the 8th, 1860, so this is over 100 years ago, a steamer, Lady Elgin, collided with a schooner by the name of Augusta on Lake Michigan. Lake Michigan is one of the great lakes here in North America. And how many have ever been, you know, in, a, in kind of a turbulent situation on the waters? And I mean, you've been around it. Yeah, Patty goes, I've been there. You know, it can be very terrifying to be in a storm on a huge ocean or in a huge lake. It's a very terrifying experience. And, and so there was this collision. And of the 385 passengers on board, over, well, 287 perished. So that's the majority of people were lost. It's kind of a great tragedy. One of the, you know, they sent out a tugboat and he, they were able to pick up some people out of the water. And some of them actually swam to shore because it was relatively close to the shores of um, Evanston, Illinois, where Northwestern University is currently located today. And also at that time, uh, Garrett Bible Institute. So Northwestern had a Bible college as asphyxiated as a part of that school. Among the group that was there on the shores trying to help people that were trying to swim through the, the undertow and the, the great waves and the wind and, you know, just a terrible situation was a young man by the name of Edward Spicer. And I actually looked this up and did more research on him because he's very fascinating. He actually tied a rope around himself and dove into the water to swim out because he could hear the people crawl, crying out to be helped. You know, they were drowning. And so... Some other students tried, but they weren't strong enough. The, 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 the waves were, were, were really difficult. And he, he had, you know, done a lot of swimming in his day. He was strong enough to do it. And so he went out and swam out. And he had this rope so that they could, you know, if he got in trouble, they could pull him back in. And as he was swimming out there, uh, one time one of the, the debris from the boat hit him on the head, you know. And people could see on shore that he was having a bit of difficulty. They started pulling him back in. But right then he actually heard someone close by calling out, and so he untied the rope, swam out to the person further, and then swam back. Now, what was amazing is when he got back onto shore, they had a fire going, and they threw a blanket around him, gave him some coffee to kind of stimulate, warm him up. And he said to one of the military people around there, he said, please man this rope, because they're going to, pu- they're going to kill me out here if they're pulling at the wrong time. So he got someone else in charge of it, and for the next six hours... He spent time swimming out to rescue people that were actually drowning in Lake Michigan. At the end of that time, after he pulled out 17 people, he was so physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted that all he could do was, you know, basically collapse. And and they heard him uttering these words, did I do my best? Did I do my best? Apparently, he kind of set a tone for the school. From that point on, there was a sense of self-effacement that was kind of the tradition of Northwestern. Years later, many years later, an American evangelist by the name of R.A. Torrey, quite well noted, uh, ministered in Los Angeles. He was speaking in Los Angeles. He was telling of this young man's heroic rescue of these individuals from this great tragedy in Lake Michigan. As he's sharing the story... 
Men in the audience yelled out, Edward Spicer is actually in our audience. And so Dr. Torrey invited him to the platform, of course. You know, hearing the story, people were cheering, and here an aged man comes to the platform. And so Dr. Torrey asked him if there was anything in particular that stood out in his memory of that fateful, awful day that actually had so debilitated Edward Spencer that he could not finish his studies. He was physically, uh, you know, somewhat debilitated by that experience, as well as emotionally distraught. You can imagine listening to children and people around you crying out, and you can't reach them all, and some of them perish. So he was really affected by that experience. So he said to him, what one thing particularly stands out in your memory? And he said, sir, of the 17 people I was able to pull out of the lake, not one of them thanked me. Now, that's kind of a shocking statement, but yet we see that ingratitude is actually expressed so many places today. There's such a prevalent mentality in our culture. So what happens when we, we live with this, this state of ingratitude? And it's really reflected on the, on the nature of, you know, walking around and we're unhappy, we complain, we're frustrated. And isn't that true? That's, in life, we can have those experiences where we're, we're frustrated and we're complaining about things. And yet, when we read in the Old Testament, when God had led his people into the wilderness, one of the biggest problems was they constantly complained about their situation. And it's actually a reflection of someone who does not know that there's a God who cares about them. It's really a reflection of a lack of belief. I, I just wrote down, ingratitude is an expression of unbelief in the goodness of an all-wise God. In other words, ingratitude is a confession of a lack of trust in God's goodness and His promises toward us. I mean, if you knew somebody deeply cared about you and had the power to do something about your situation and yet allowed you, because God has control of everything, to experience certain things in your life, you would begin to, you know, basically by complaining would say, God, you don't really know what you're doing in my life. And sometimes God does allow negative things to occur in our lives, but he has an ultimate purpose and a reason for it. The book of Romans says it this way. This is in the New Testament. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile. In other words, it was without a sense of purpose, became meaningless, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I don't know if you understand, but This is an attitude, folks, that leads to an action. And I believe that our attitudes are shaping the direction of our lives. The way we see things, the way we think about life, the way we respond to situations are first determined by how we perceive life. It's about about our attitude. And you know what? If we have an attitude of ingratitude, and you know, it's really simple, especially in a culture as affluent as ours, that we develop this kind of entitlement thinking. And it really quickly slips over to ingratitude. And it becomes a major problem. It says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, fools not mean stupid. It means people who become morally deficient. And then it goes on to say, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. And I, I just put down here, that, that's the essence of secularism. When you take God out of the equation, what do you look to is humanity for the answers. That's, a, that's what we're living in. Our culture today, secularism is growing in leaps and bounds. And then it says it degenerates even further. And it, then it says, and they begin to exchange the glory of the immortal, invisible God to look like birds and animals and reptiles. And, you know, that's pantheism. 
And, you know, sometimes we look at that and we go, I don't even relate to this stuff, Pastor. But in our culture today, think about how popular the New Age movement really is today. There's a spirituality because humanity, we are designed by God in His image. We are made not, not just a physical being, not that God's physical, but we are made, you know, as a spiritual being and we're designed to know God and to worship God. And we are worshipers and we will worship something. Either we worship ourselves or we worship everything else as if it is God. And that's what Paul is writing about here. This weekend is a time that I rejoice that we get to celebrate Thanksgiving. And so often in our culture, it's about having friends and family to get together. And that's awesome. That's a neat expression. But the question I ask is, what are we thankful for? And maybe better yet, to whom are we thankful to? As we turn to the Bible, we're going to discover songs of thanksgiving are a major note, especially in this book of the Bible, the Psalms. The Psalms are actually songs, and they're poetry. Even the lament, the lament is a cry of anguish. And I love the Psalms because the Psalms reflect the vast gamut of human emotion. And you hear the psalmist being so real and authentic with God from his despair, his discouragement, his doubt, his frustration, his anger, whatever the human emotion is, you see it expressed in the psalms. Even the lament, which is a cry of anguish, it's so interesting. They always end on a note of thanksgiving. Isn't that fascinating? Bernard Anderson, an Old Testament scholar, says, in the certainty of being heard by God, The supplicant, the prayer person, whether the community or the individual, looks forward to God's deliverance from a situation of limitation or distress. And in anticipation of God's gracious action, the lament ends with a vow of praise. Isn't that neat? So they may be complaining, but at the end you hear, but God, I know you're going to come through. But God, I'm waiting patiently for you because I know you care about me. These are the kind of endings you get on these lament songs. You know, the distinction between praise and thanksgiving, even though it's minor, it's simply this. Thanksgiving is actually an expression of gratitude to God for a very specific answer. Where praise is actually the expression of gratitude to God for who he is and that we're to give that to him at all times. The Psalms have a number of expressions, both individual and community. And so, you know, as I was thinking about Thanksgiving today, I was praying and I thought, you know, I'm going to focus in on one of these songs of Thanksgiving. And I wanted to get a shorter one because the longer ones are harder to manage. But so we got this one that's 15 verses long. I've never preached on Psalm 92. And so I began wrestling with the psalm and saying, you know, what's this psalm all about? And it was interesting. How many of you notice in your Bible, you'll notice there's a little inscription at the top of the song. And it says this, a psalm, a song. That's really what they are, a song for the Sabbath day. Now, this is the only psalm in the entire Old Testament that actually has a purpose for the Sabbath. You know, now, in the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Bible, there's only one psalm that says for the Sabbath day. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, the Septuagint, there's seven psalms. So this one is the one for sure psalm that is for the Sabbath. You go, what's the Sabbath about anyways, Pastor? Well, let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible. And in there in chapter 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. 
And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So in other words, the word Sabbath means rest. And how many know that when God rested, what he basically did was enjoy what he had done? You know, a lot of us, we don't know how to enjoy life. We don't really enjoy the good things that have been accomplished in and through our lives. God looked back and he said, boy, that stuff is good. Everything that God had created, it says, and it was good. Isn't that neat that, you know, sometimes we're like little machines down here. We're just like ceaseless activity. But, you know, God designed it so that you and I should take time to rest. Isn't that neat? But we don't do that. And what happens is we end up violating not only our physical bodies, but we also violate our emotions because we're just too stimulated all the time. But the Sabbath was also a time where we got an opportunity to worship and to reflect on who God is. And I think for most people, they don't take time to ever do that. So God is not in most people's thoughts. But here as we gather, hopefully in a weekly way that we come before God, we can hear what God thinks about our lives. And so it says here in verse 3 that God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. And the word holy just means, and he set it apart for a specific purpose, a purpose for himself. And because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, Rabbi Averon Fuhr, he's a Jewish scholar. He says this regarding this whole element of God's Sabbath. And I love this. He said, it is both unreasonable and unwise to pass judgment on a work of art before it has been completed. How many know that's true? As a matter of fact, he said, even masterpiece may look like a grotesque mass of strokes and colors prior to its completion. So even the greatest painters and the greatest paintings, if you would have looked at him at the beginning, you would have said, there's not much to this thing. It's not done yet, right? And human history is actually God's masterpiece. Physical creation was completed at the end of the sixth day, but the spiritual development of mankind continues until the end of this world. That, thus, it is unfair and impossible to judge God's equity before the denouement or the final outcome of human history, despite the fact that history appears to be a long series of tragic injustices. Similarly, when the panorama of human history is completed, at that time, all of Adam's descendants, that's humanity, will look back and admire God's completed masterpiece. So, you know what we tend to do? We're always looking and making comments on things that aren't done yet, Right? And don't we kind of do that with ourselves too? We look at our lives and we're frustrated with ourselves. And I just want to point something out. If God started a work in you, he promises he'll finish it. But we really get upset with ourselves because we're not the end product yet. Anybody ever have that experience? Anybody get frustrated with yourself? Like, hey, you know, but listen, you're not, you're not completed yet. And sometimes we get frustrated with other people. Anybody ever get frustrated with other people now? Let's be real honest. You know, but let me point out to you, they're not completed either. They're still in the process of God's work in their life. And human history is not completed. And when we get to the very end, when we will look back at the end of human history, and I believe we all have that life that's eternal in, in its scope, We'll look back and say, God, what an amazing job you did. You know, I'm so impressed. I mean, when I was looking at it while I was in it, it was pretty messed up. But now that I look at the finished product, I go, wow. And isn't it true in our lives that when we walk through difficulties and challenges, we're in the middle of it, we despair, and we're so discouraged. And then we get through to the end of the experience and we look back and we go, wow. You know, this turned out better than I thought. I mean, what was meant for evil has now been used for good. I've grown as an individual. I'm far more impatient. I have a deeper level of understanding. So God is at work in these two situations here. 
Now in Psalm 92, we see two classes of people. Those who know the goodness of God and are thankful, and those who do not know God and don't fully understand what life is truly all about. And so there's three stanzas to the song that we're going to look at. And it's a hymn revealing to us something of the nature of God and our response to him in life's various situations. So let's take a look at the first one here. It's simply the appropriateness of thanking him. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. Actually, that word, it's a good thing, it's actually a fitting thing. It's an appropriate thing to praise God. I would argue there's nothing greater that you and I can do in this life than to thank God. So, you know, when you and I take time out like this on a weekend, you go, I got so much to do. The greater thing to do is to stop and worship and rest and enjoy God and to begin to express thanksgivings to him. That's the greatest work that human beings can possibly do. Listen, the psalmist reminds us of this. In verse 1, it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High. Proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Look what it says. Proclaiming God's love and faithfulness at night. It's, you know, when you study literature and language, there's a thing called merisms. You know what merisms are? It's when we use words to describe something like heaven. You know, how many notice they always talk about heaven and earth? Night and day. Now, what does night and day represent? It means continuous. It means all the time. If I'm to worship God night and day, if I'm to meditate on God night and day, I'm doing it continuously. And think about this, uh, this idea that, that we develop a certain mentality, a certain attitude, a certain frame of mind. Now notice what the psalmist says in other songs. He says this in Psalm 34.1. He says, I will extol, another translation says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Now, I've got to ask the question, is that our attitude? I'm always thanking God for everything that's happening in my life. Lord, I just want to thank you for this. Or do we walk around, you know, grumpy, complaining, irritated, frustrated? I'm just pointing these things out, you know. There's two attitudes. You know, you run into a situation and you can say, oh God. Or you can say, oh God. You know what I mean? There's a different attitude that you're moving into that situation in. Listen to what it says in Psalm 103, verse 1. He says, Bless, uh, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and don't forget all of his benefits. So now the psalmist is talking to himself, and he's reminding himself, hey, wait a minute, look what God's done for me. Remember the benefits. Who forgives all your sins. How many think that's a pretty awesome thing that God forgives our sins? You know, sometimes we don't even forgive ourselves, but God forgives us. It says, and heals all your diseases. He's a healer. It redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. I was sharing in the first service. Some of us don't even love ourselves. And yet God can love us. Isn't that an amazing thought? And you know, I really believe once we let God's love penetrate our hearts and we begin to actually love ourselves, we can actually begin to love other people. That's so important. He crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. That's an interesting expression. You know, I finally decided, what in the world is he talking about here? And I found out one of the things that eagles do in, mid, in their midlife is they pluck all the feathers off their bodies. They literally pluck. That's, how many things? That's pretty painful, you know, plucking all the And what it does is it allows their feathers to redevelop and grow, and it leads them to a new level of, of uh, life. They have a renewed 
situation. That's why the Bible talks about to renew your life like an eagle. There's a renewal that God wants to bring into our lives. Isn't that amazing? But oftentimes, to actually experience a renewal, you have to strip the old away. And some of us are clinging on to things in our lives and wrong attitudes and wrong ways of thinking, and it's holding us down. And God wants to bring an awakening, a renewal in our lives. Then I notice Paul, the apostle, writing in the New Testament. He picks up on this theme, and he says it this way, Rejoice in the Lord when life is really good. Oh, it doesn't say that. What does it say? Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Somehow we need to hear this message. But then he says it in another text. Rejoice always. Then he says, pray continually. In other words, prayer and rejoicing should become just a way of life for us. And then he says it this way. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, we should be thankful people. This, this shouldn't just be a one-day-a-year expression. This should be a 365-days-a-year expression. This should be the new default switch inside of us, you know. Immediately we go to praising God. Immediately we go to thanking God. That just becomes a way of life. You know, I love what C.S. Lewis says about the challenging and difficult moments of life. He says this, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it's good... Thank God because it's good. And if it's bad, because it works in us. Patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country. And, you know, I think what Lewis is just reminding us is simply this, that when, you know, when something goes the wrong way in our estimation, there's a purpose for it. And God is working something in our lives. How many know you don't develop character apart from having challenge and struggle in your life? You know, how do you develop patience? By having trials. That's how patience develops. You know, most of us, we don't like trials. You know, if we had our way, we'd put our order into God. Please, I want a, you know, a convenient life with no hassles. That's our prayer request, right? And God goes, that's not my goal for you. My goal for you is to make you like me, and I want to develop godly character in you. So I'm going to allow you to experience some things in your life that you're not going to personally enjoy at the time. But I want, to, I want you to develop through that. I want you to exercise through that experience. And then sometimes, you know, uh, we have people who are, you know, we, we get to a certain stage in life, and we just want to stay on earth forever. And if you're living a good life, why would you want to leave, Right? And so what happens is sometimes to prepare us for eternity, one of my professors said this one time, sometimes to prepare us for eternity, God lets us suffer on earth. And after a while we go, you know, I'm getting tired of suffering. I'd like to be gone now. You know, I'd like to be checking out. I'd like to go to where you have, you know, where I'm going to spend eternity with you, Lord, and not just be hanging around here. Then he goes on, he says, proclaiming God's love and faithfulness. I love that. You and I are to proclaim that. But you know that word love, it's, it's such an amazing word. I, I'm in love with this word love in the Old Testament. Because the way the translators you know, translate it, some translations say loving kindness. Some say tender mercies. Some say faithful love. Some say covenantal love. How many here you speak more than one language? You actually speak more than one language. Okay, let me ask you guys a question. How many recognize that in some language, you're trying to give a meaning in another language, but there's no equivalency? Right? And then you're trying to convey the idea, but that idea doesn't even exist in that other language. So it's really difficult. And so here we're trying to translate a word that for most of us we're not getting. So, you know, I have a book I've read on one word. It's this word, has said, that which was translated here, 
you know, we're, we're meditating on God's love. And uh, Hesed, as, as Karen Sankenfels, who's the author of the book, says, Hesed makes an English equivalency impossible because of the various shades of meaning of the term. So there's so many translated words for it. But this is what I like. There are a number of words that have a bearing on understanding the nature of Hesed. And one of them is Barith. Now, I, I wrote it in Hebrew there for you, for all the Hebrew scholars here. But, you know, Barith means covenant. And some of you are taking a class right now on covenant. And you're all excited. Yay. But let me point out to you something. You need to understand how God relates to people in covenant and in covenant love. And it's so encouraging The generalization of hesed from specific action to overall behavior is apparently a result of the association of the term with political arrangements. So in other words, Catherine Sackenfeld argues that hesed is found in political or covenantal treaties. And, and, you know, Mark, you studied Dr. Longman there in Jeremiah. He talked about this. And what's really exciting is there's two kinds of treaties in the ancient world. One's a parity treaty. That means they're equals. They're making it covenant, right? And there's no external basis for enforcement. Nobody's putting pressure in for them to do this covenant. That's not kind of what marriage is supposed to be, this covenant, right? Nor is there any external control on the superior party of a Caesarean treaty. Now, Caesarean treaty is a little different. You have a nation who's the dominant nation who actually conquers a vassal nation or a subjugated nation. This is a Caesarean treaty. One's more powerful than the other. Then she says this, and I love this. Whoever is permanently or temporarily in the position of advantage is free to do as they or he or she, she pleases, right? Isn't that true? If you're, if you're superior, you're going to be able to do what you want. You've got the power. His self-restraint and general protection rather than exploitation of the weaker party may be understood as has said. As well as any positive acts of deliverance, which, with, which, which, which may be needed. Okay, so what's going on here? What simply is this: that God, who is greater than us, is making a covenant with us, and He could crush us, but He doesn't do that. Instead, He protects us, and He loves us, and He's faithful to this covenant, and He continues to love us. That is so amazing to me. This is the concept that is being brought out in the psalm here. It says in Psalm 92, it says, proclaiming your love in the morning. You know, don't you love that lamentation that Jeremiah's writing? He says, your mercies are new every morning. Your said, your love, God's goodness is coming to you every morning. You wake up, you go, thank you, Lord. It's morning, right? It's a new day. I love that. You know, one of our greatest need in life is to experience this kind of love to have a deeper revelation of it. The Apostle Paul prayed for the believers at Ephesus to have this understanding. Listen to what he says. And I pray that you being rooted, means established, and, and well, being rooted, grounded, and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now, I want, to, I want you to think about what he's saying here. The greatest need that you have and I have in this life is to be loved. You say, well, no, no, I, I want to be understood, Pastor. That's another form of love. No, I want to be respected. That's another form of love. I want to be cherished. 
That's another form of love. Your greatest need and my greatest need is to be loved. And you know what? We have to be loved unconditionally. And I keep saying this. No human being can love you at the level at which you need to be loved. Only God can love us at that level. And once we experience that love, it begins to change us because love changes us. And the Bible says God is love. And that love comes into our lives. But the biggest problem is we never fully grasp how much God loves us. See, we are so conditional in our thinking. We think God will love me when I'm good. No, God loves you anyways. How many know that when you're a child? You know, like, think about, how many here are parents? You're a parent. Okay, think about this. What does the child do to deserve to be loved? You know, the baby comes along, you're holding this baby, and you have this, I'm going to call it an irrational love for someone who's going to keep you up in the next three months. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. I guarantee you, right? Everyone's laughing because you know it's true. And you have this irrational, you don't even, you know, sometimes you're dragging yourself out of bed and you just feel like, but I love this child. And this child is so needy, needs me. And we have this irrational, listen, God loves us not because we are so lovable. God loves us because it's in his nature. And God loves us. And we, we have a hard time grasping this. You know, you say, well, I've done the wrong thing. Why should God love me? Because God doesn't love based on your actions. God loves you based on who he is. Aren't you glad for that? That's such a powerful thought. You know, then it says here, we need to utilize the arts to express our adoration to God. Here we see the psalmist using music as an expression of joy to God. I think if you were a painter, paint something, you know. You know, whatever you do, build a house, whatever, whatever the thing that you're crafting, if you can write something, write to the glory of God. It says the psalmist speaks of the great works of God and his profound thoughts. Look at verse 5. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. That word thoughts there actually could be translated how profound are your designs or how profound are your ways. How many know God's ways are not like ours? As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah reminds us of that. He says, let the wicked forsake his, their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon or forgive. Then he says, for my thoughts, this is God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wow. You know, what do we need to think about that? What we need to realize is God is not on the same frequency. You see, we, we have it all figured out and God goes, no, no, I'm way beyond you. You know, sometimes we, we, we feel like God has to be accountable to us. You know, we're upset about something. We're trying to tell God, what are you, in the world are you doing, God? God goes, yeah, I can't even explain it to you. It'd be like trying to have a mature person explain to a little infant why they're taking away something that's not good for them. The child is so irrational, they just never get it. They'll be screaming, right? right? Isn't that true? You know, try taking something away from a child, see what happens that they want. I'm sure you're going to get a reaction. Isn't that kind of what we're like as human beings? We just cannot understand what in the world God's doing. But God says, listen, what I am doing is so beyond you guys. You need to understand that. It comes down to trusting him. But let me move on to the second stanza. It talks about those who are senseless, you know, is the senseless one, people who are resisting him and who remain in rebellion of him. Often it's just because Number one, they've never heard. Number two, there's a lack of understanding. Number three, sometimes there's a rebellion. And I'm going to just say something. We're all by nature are rebels. All by nature, we all want to do our own thing. The Bible says that. Isaiah says that in chapter 
uh, 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone to our own way. We all want to play God. We all want to determine what is right and what is wrong. The problem with that is we're just not smart enough. We just don't always identify what's good and what's evil. We don't always identify what's good and what's best. We just don't get it. God understands it. God's the one that needs to define it for us. Verse 6 says, Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. Now, these are fools. We think of fool as foolish person, a stupid, you know, mentally challenged. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people who are morally deficient. Even though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. Wow. Now, take a look at what the Proverbs teach us. Listen to what it says in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. I love this. This is the prologue and this is the last verse of the prologue. He says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. In chapter 10 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job says the same thing. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is wisdom literature. So Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman writes this, this. This fear is not the fear that makes us want to run away. It's not that kind of fear. But it is the fear that makes us pay attention and listen. We, God's got our attention. Fear of the Lord makes us humble. A wisdom trait rather than proud and wise in our own eyes. In other words, we're saying, God... I just know you're way smarter than me. I just want to hear what you got to say. Do you know really smart people are humble people? Because they know they know limited amount. And you know what you discover as you get older and you study more? The more you know, the less you know. That's what you find out. And so you become humbled and you say, there's people out there know a lot more than I do about this. And I'm, my argument here today is God knows so much more. And you know what I've learned as you get older, you learn things. They say, well, gee, I wish I'd have known this earlier. You know, I, I'm at a certain stage in my life. I said, man, wouldn't it be great to be able to hop it up your 15-year-old body with the head pack that you got now and your, you know, how many say that would be a pretty advantageous thing, wouldn't it? You have all that experiences, all the stupid things you did, you don't have to do them again. I mean, that's pretty good, right? Well, we can eliminate some of those dumb things and mistakes if we just listen to what God has to say because he's pretty smart. That's all I'm saying. He says, the fear of the Lord inevitably leads to obedience. When I really respect God, I go, wow, you're just too smart. And look what you're showing me, and I'm going to do what you say. And the one who fears God will follow the advice that God imparts through the sages or the wisdom teachers in the chapters of the instruction in the form of lectures and proverbs that follow the preface of the book of Proverbs. This is the introduction to his book, The Fear of the Lord. The prosperity of the wicked is short-lived. What we need to understand is that the wicked are the enemies of God and they only thrive in favorable situations. How many know grass is very fragile? You've got to have favorable conditions to make grass work. You know, in Canada, we get a lot of rain, but you know, this was written where? In Israel. That's an arid part of the world. You know, grass, you know, you may get rain for a little while. When we go to Israel, it's usually in the wintertime, it's green, but most of the time it's brown. Grass isn't doing good. So I put down, you know, people who are disobeying God have to have favorable situations to prosper. But if they lose that favorable situation, boy, they just shrivel up in no time flat. They don't have any sustenance. They don't have any sustainability. It's going to die. It's going to wither. It's going to perish. And then he, then he goes on and contrasts that, as we're going to see, to the righteous who are likened to trees. And if you read Psalm 1, it says the tree that's planted by the water. 
So the roots go down and tap in and it produces life. You know, we have to be reminded that evildoers who have no thought of God may prosper and enjoy this life. As a matter of fact, the psalmist was a little bent out of shape in Psalm 73. Here's what he said. He goes, but as for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. In other words, I'm struggling emotionally and mentally. My attitude is wrong. He said, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. You know, when you're young, you can take on the world. But how many know when you get older, you're going, me, my body's starting to break down here. Who's going to take care of me? We're going to talk about that in a minute. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. And you know, a lot of times that's where we camp, right there. We're troubled. Hey, God, I did all the right things. Why is this bad stuff happening to me? Hey, I'm doing what's right. And you know what? These other guys are doing what's wrong, and they're getting ahead, and I'm losing ground. Anybody have that struggle? Okay, here's the guy talking about it. And then he says this. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their destiny. You know, it's really amazing when we take time out in the week, we come into the house of God, we begin to worship, begin to hear the word of the Lord, and all of a sudden we realize, oops, oh yeah, this is what's going to happen. He says, surely you place them on a slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. Wow. It happened so quickly. How many people have risen up, became extremely famous, extremely... Wealthy, extremely popular, very quickly, and all of a sudden, later on, you can't even find them anymore. They're just, we call them HBs, has-beens. You know what? Our world celebrates people who do good, and the moment they don't do good, we throw everything at them. There's so much jealousy and envy inside of people, it's unbelievable. Let me move on to the third point, the value of being in a right relationship with God. Now we have this contrast between those who are at enmity or at odds with God and those who are in a right relationship with Him. He says here in verse 10, You've exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on, uh, poured on me. In other words, you've shown me favor. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversary. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. James Mays reminds us moral life like cosmos and history involve combat. Loyalty to the reign of God exposes the righteous to the opposition of the wicked. You know, if you stand for God, you're going to have opponents. And I said this last Sunday, I said, isn't it amazing? If Jesus were to live on earth today, we'd crucify him all over again. And not only that, as, as wonderful as he was, as sinless as he was, as loving as he was, as a healer as he was, we'd crucify him all over again because we'd be offended by him. It's amazing. What we need to realize, as the psalmist says, we have these enemies. But let me just point out something from the New Testament now. Paul writes in Romans, what then shall we say in response to these things? He's talking about all the things that can come against us. If God is for us, I love that word if, that's important. Don't just imagine God's for you. But if God is for you, who can be against you? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You know, I, I say to myself, God, you are now my father. I'm your child. You gave up your son for me. If you're willing to give up your best, anything less than that is no problem for you. That's love, man. God gave his best for us. He's going to take care of us. Knowing all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. Listen to what it says in Psalm 92. He says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree and they'll grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. Isn't it? How many see the contrast? Grass that flourishes but quickly diminishes versus trees that are planted in God's house. And listen to what it says. This, I love this part. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. Oh, I like that. Because I'm going to tell you something. You guys may be young now, but you're going to get old one day. Hate to tell you that. The only other alternative is you're not on the planet. Right? So, you know what? You can say, well, I'm fresh and vibrant and young right now, but one day when you're old, I I like to think God says, no problem. You're going to stay fresh and green. You're going to stay fruitful. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. What a great promise. It says, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there's no wickedness in him. Do you know that both those trees that are mentioned here, palm trees and cedar trees, are both part of the physical construction of the temple? The cedars were those big Lebanon trees, the cedars of Lebanon. They were used in the actual physical building of it. But the palm trees were actually used as uh, symbols inside the temple. And you know, if you've ever been to Israel, they have date palms. And date palms are, are these beautiful, you know, if you like dates, they have them in Israel and you can eat them. It sustains, it, it speaks of fertility and sustenance. What is God saying to us? He says, I'm going I'm to keep you guys in a state of sustenance. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to take care of you. And I think a lot of older people, they get, they get anxious and upset because they're wondering how, how's the future going to you know, measure out. You know, because I, I think that we here realize that we do have enemies. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But I like what Dr. Longman says. The idea is that the righteous flourish because they stay near the presence of God. You know, the Bible says, in the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. I love that. So what are the righteous proclaiming? That God is upright. He is our foundation. He's our rock. He's our strength. And there's no wickedness in Him. God, there's no evil in God. How many realize that evil in God cannot coexist? And last week I talked about what happens to evil. Evil has no sense of durability. It's self-destructive. It has no sense of long-lastedness. It can't endure. It can't sustain itself. Eventually, it comes to an end. We have the hope that, that there will come a moment here of ultimate cessation of evil. Isn't that the ultimate rest? That evil is now ended? And think about our enemies. Here the, you know, remember I said the psalm is a song of thanksgiving. What is he thanking God for? That he's been delivered from his enemies. But you see, you and I are thinking, what, who are his enemies? Well, it never says what, who his enemies are. And I think the Psalms do that on purpose because everybody has different enemies. But let me point out to us that in the Old Testament, usually the enemies were people, right? They were armies and nations and all the rest of it. But in the New Testament, it's all spiritualized. And what you have there is a different kind of enemy. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's not, you know, our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let me ask the question, what are our enemies? Who are our enemies? And here's what they are. Our enemies are the lies that we tell ourselves. You say, why? Because when we tell a lie to ourselves, it keeps us from being free. And a lot of people live in lies. 
And the Bible says, and the truth will set you free. And how many people in this room, you've, you've been listening to lies all of your life. You've been told you're not good enough. You've been told you've never been able to do that. You've been told all kinds of things. And you've listened to these lies. And it's actually paralyzed you from exactly what God wanted you to do. So we have lies that are our enemies. I'll give you some other enemies that come into our life. How many people here you say, you know, I worry. I get so anxious about the future. I get anxious about what's about to happen. Anybody here ever deal with anxiety? Some of you guys are liars. That's... <laughs> I've had to battle anxiety at times. I'm being honest. Any... Come on, how many here, you've, you've never had any anxious moment in your life? Oh, more hands are going up. I see you're coming to the knowledge of the truth. <laughs> anxiety, worry, fear. Anybody ever been afraid? Come on now, fear. Isn't that true? That's an enemy. Those are all enemies. What about sickness? Is not sickness the enemy of humanity? Is not death the enemy of humanity? But I'm here to declare to you today that our God came to this earth and lived as a human being. His name was Jesus and he conquered every last enemy that humanity had until he himself conquered death itself so that you and I could have life eternal. We need to realize that in Christ we have conquered our enemies. We have conquered our enemies. You say, do I have anything to be thankful for? I am thankful that I have life. I am thankful for God's amazing plan of redemption. I'm thankful that God called me to himself, that God allowed me to be delivered from all my enemies. Let us stand. I like this song. I like this song. Anybody else like this song? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful song. You know, I'm rejoicing in it today. You know, as I think about this psalm this morning, I'm just going to have you bow your heads for a minute, just close your eyes. Just give you a moment. This is a moment of reflection. How many here today say, you know what? Pastor, as I was listening to this, I recognize there's enemies in my life. You named some. I could keep going down the list. You know, every type of sin is an enemy. Because sin is a form of insanity. Because sin actually produces the principle of death into our lives. And it destroys my relationship with God and it destroys my relationships with other human beings. I have enemies. Maybe you're here today and you have enemies. And, you're, and I, I mentioned some. Fear, worry, distress. Unbelief is an enemy. Doubt is an enemy. Despair is an enemy. Discouragement is an enemy. Depression is an enemy. All of these things are an enemy to humanity. And we battle these things. And I'm here to declare to you that in Christ, you can be free from that enemy. As you and I put our faith in Him, He can deliver us from all of those things. It can change our attitude. You know, we can move away from being unhappy, from complaining, from being filled with ingratitude. That's where we started, right? 
In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. I can live every day with thanksgiving in my heart. I can make the day of thanksgiving the way I live. My attitudes can begin to define every circumstance of life that no matter what comes my way, be it good fortune or ill, I can have the right attitude in that situation. And you're here today. You go, there's, there's enemies in my life, Pastor. And, you're, and the Spirit of God's talking to you today. I believe God's talking to hearts today through these words. And that's you. Just raise your hands and say, you know, I've got enemies. I want God to set me free from. I want to be delivered from those enemies. Just raise your hands. That's you. Stands going up all over the place because, folks, these are, these are the common conditions of humanity. And I want to pray with you today that Christ would come and defeat those enemies in your life. That as you surrender to him and say, Lord, you know, the Bible says be anxious. That means don't worry about anything. But in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes human wisdom and understanding will begin to guard your heart. Isn't it amazing that I can have moments in my life where I have anxious thoughts and I can begin to cast it to God in prayer and begin to thank that God is in that situation. All of a sudden, that anxiety is stripped from my heart and now a supernatural sense of peace comes into my soul and protects me against the, the, that, that real that enemy that's out to destroy my joy, my hope. See, I'm just pointing, I'm just giving you an illustration of how it works. It's actually, it does work, folks. And so, Lord, we come to you today. And we bring all of these things before these enemies that we have. And your word says, if you are for us, who can be against us? And we know that there are these flaming, fiery darts of the enemy, these principalities and powers, and they come against us and they bombard us with fears and doubts and uh, frustrations and all of these temptations that come our way. And we, it robs us of peace and joy and hope. And I pray today, right now, Lord, as you're speaking into our spirit, you're speaking into our innermost being, I pray that you would purvey hope into our hearts today, that you would strengthen us by your spirit in our innermost being. Lord, that we would leave this place laying aside the burdens that we brought here today, that we would lay aside our fears, our unbelief, our doubt. We'd lay these things at your feet today and we would experience your amazing measure of love and grace, your amazing mercy and goodness. And that we could meditate on these things, Lord, your goodness, your love, your mercy, and your faithfulness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.